Turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, reading from verse 9. Bond servants, or I think better, slaves, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak uh, evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray as ever for the help of your Holy Spirit now as we come to study your Holy Word. Uh, Father, we pray that he would come, that he would be our tutor, our guide, that he would help us to rightly read Mark and inwardly digest these words, and that we might respond to them in a way that is appropriate and obedient. Father, help us, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul summed up the essential Christian ethic. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, when he said, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is to say, as Paul distilled down the ethics of the Christian life and boiled it down to one concentrated sentence, What he wanted to communicate was that our understanding of our relationship to God in and through Christ should utterly devastate our pride and compel us to take a posture of radical humility with those around us. It is the very essence of everything that Paul teaches in that latter half of his letter to the Ephesians. You remember how that letter is structured. In the first half of Ephesians, all the verbs are in the indicative mood. That is to say, in the first half of that letter, all of the verbs are telling us about something that God has done for us in our salvation. But in the second half of that letter, all the verbs are in the imperative mood. That is to say that they are telling us about what we must now do in response. And the essential thing that Paul wants us to understand, the essential thing that we must do in response to all that we have received from God, and everything that he teases out and applies in his instructions about life together in the church and life in public and life in the family and life in the workplace, all of it is really an application of Ephesians 5.21, that central and core instruction, that central and core ethic, that our understanding of all that we have received from God 
in and through Christ should drive us on to pursue a life of fundamental self-denial and self-forgetfulness in which we seek always to serve and edify others. And I say all that because that is the core ethic that Paul is bringing to bear upon the church in Crete as he is writing to his protege Titus, trying to help Titus navigate the tricky waters of pastoring this church that has been so disrupted by false teachers. Right? This church has been turned upside down by false teachers that have come in the wake of, of Paul or or whoever it was that planted this church. And these false teachers, they've come in with a different gospel. They've come in saying that, that yes, Jesus is essential for salvation, but Jesus isn't sufficient for salvation. They've come in and they've said, yes, you must believe in Christ in order to be saved, but in order to be saved, you must add something to that faith in Christ. There are works that need to be done in order to be truly saved. And the result was, as we have seen, that there developed a transactional view of God, which then fostered an understanding that, well, you can have it both ways. You can find salvation in Christ, but you don't have to give up your sin, at least not all of it. And then the burden of this letter has been helping Titus to understand how to deconstruct that false and deadly teaching and then build in the hearts of the Cretans a, what we could call a gospel logic that understands that the enormity of our salvation in Christ compels us to live in a way that is distinct from the culture that surrounds us, to live in a way that is marked by the law of God. And so, as we have followed this along, we have seen how Paul has done this uh, in a way that is very different from how he does it in his letter to the Ephesians. Right, as we said, the letter to the Ephesians is a very logically structured book. It's, to use a redundancy, it's a book of two halves. It is a book that follows the, the, the structure of if this, then that. If this is what God has done, then this is what we must do in response. But here, as we have noted, the, the structure of Titus is one in which his argument is all mixed up in itself. And you understand that's not a mistake. Right? It's not that this is the product of a muddled mind or a hastily written letter. When my sermons don't follow a particular logical pattern, it's probably because I am a man of muddled mind and probably didn't give it enough time. But that's not what's going on here. Rather, this is intentional. Paul, Paul mixes it up and wraps it all up in itself so that all the way through this letter, he is continually anchoring his instructions to the gospel. Right, so chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, Paul opens the letter by setting himself up as an example of someone who has been radically gripped by the gospel so that his whole life is now shaped and defined by that gospel. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, he gives an extended meditation on how our way of life is shaped by both what we have been saved from 
and what we are being saved to, that our way of life is to be informed by remembering the enormity of our salvation from sin, and then remembering the glorious hope we have of the new heavens and the new earth to which we are headed. And then here in chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, Paul explains just how much we owe to the grace of God revealed to us in Jesus. And what we have to understand as we identify these gospel anchors that Paul uses throughout this letter, we have to understand that this last section is, is climactic. Every one of these doctrinal sections builds on the previous ones to make the point more emphatically, and it's here that Paul really drives home that absolute paradigm-shifting enormity of the gospel. But here, Paul really puts away any notion that we could contribute anything to our salvation. But it is here that Paul strikes the death blow to the false teachers and to the idea that our salvation is in some way synergistic. That is to say that our salvation is in some way a product of us working together with God, working in synergy with God in order to produce our salvation. And in its place, Paul reminds Titus, and through him the congregation in, in Crete, here Paul reminds us through this letter of the absolute totality of our depravity and the absolute depths of our sin and the consequences amazing, monergistic work of God to bring us up out of that sin. Right, look at how he describes our condition and our sin. Verse 3, he says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Right? What, what we like to think of as liberty, the ability to do what we want when we want to do it, what we like to think of as, as freedom, the freedom to follow our desires, to follow the, the path of, of doing what feels good to us, Paul says that's not freedom, that's subjugation. He says that's not living life to its fullest, that's a living death. It's, it's a being constrained to, follow, to slavishly follow these, these urges, these desires, these passions that well up within you. He says it's a life that is self-centered to the point of turning in and beginning to, to consume itself, seeing others as a as a threat that have to be controlled and guarded against, a life that is, that's blind to the things of God. Right? That's what Paul means when he says in verse 3 that in our sin we were foolish. Right? You understand in the Bible, wisdom has nothing to do with, with knowledge. Right? You can be the, the smartest man in the world. You can be at the top of your profession. You can, you can be swimming in a sea of academic accolades. And the Bible says you're still not wise. 
right? In the Bible, wisdom and foolishness are about how we live our lives in the light of the knowledge we have. And so, in Proverbs 1.7, we're told that true wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. It says it doesn't matter how much knowledge you have, it doesn't matter how much education you have. It doesn't matter how far you've advanced in your career or how many journal articles you, you've written. Unless you see God and honor God as God, then you will never be wise. Right? And that's Paul's point here. He says, in our sin, we're fundamentally foolish because we, we, we live without reference to God. And so, consequently, we are condemned to a life of disobedience. We fail to conform ourselves to the law of God, but instead we live by a law of our own making, a law which seems like it's freeing, but which ironically is one that bubbles up from this slavery to our passions and desires. And so here Paul strikes this death blow to any idea that there's something good in us, some, some light in us that is to be improved upon, something that we can bring to our salvation. No, in, in heaping up all this description, Paul is, is bringing us down and showing our utter helplessness and saying there can be no synergy here. There's nothing in you that will work together with God to bring you up out of your sin. He says you understand your salvation is monergistic. God alone has worked to bring you up out of your sin. God alone in Christ has released you from that bondage. He alone has washed you clean from your sin. He alone has regenerated you. He's made you new. You knew. He has remade you in the image of Christ. He has replaced your degraded self-focused slavery with a union and a communion with himself that is so full and so rich that verse 7, he now calls us his, his heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul says that's, that's your salvation. You're brought up out of the slave market of your sin and you're brought into the palace not just as guests and visitors, but as, as sons and heirs, as, as residents. And his point in all of this is that that is, is profoundly humbling. It destroys our pride because it means that everything we have, we have because we have We've just passively received it. We have done nothing to get it. Right? It's, as Paul says in verse 5, it's not because of works done by us in righteousness. We're simply passive recipients of this monergistic, gracious work of God. Right? And the reason why Paul ends with this, the reason why his three passages on the nature of our salvation ends with this one, ends with such a devastating blow to our pride, is because this is the ultimate driver of the way of life that he is advocating. Unless we understand just how far down we were in our sin, just unless we understand just how how, how wretched we were in our natural state, then we 
simply won't understand what we have received from the hands of God. Right? Or to put it another way, unless we understand chapter 3, 1 through 7, then we can't understand chapter 2, 11 through 14 properly. And if we don't understand chapter 2, 11 through 14 properly, then we don't understand chapter 1, 1, 2, and 3 properly. Or to put it another way still, if you, unless you understand just how devastatingly disabling and just how utterly ugly you were in your sin, then you won't understand properly what it means for God in Christ to have saved you by His grace and made you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You won't understand the enormity of the grace of God that has removed the guilt of your sin and granted you a place of free and full fellowship with God now, but even more fully when Jesus returns. And unless you understand that, then you simply won't have the security or the compulsion you need to pursue a way of life in imitation of Paul, as he commends right at the beginning of the letter. You simply won't have the security or the compulsion to pursue a way of life that self-identifies as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ unless you understand the radical totality of the depths of your sin and the consequent heights of God's love, then you won't be able, as we have just sung, to let goods and kindred go in this mortal life also. You won't be able to dedicate yourself to a life lived for the glory of God and the magnification of Christ. But if you do, if you follow Paul's progression here, if you are gripped by all of this, then, then, then you are. And, and this is why Paul ends his list of practical instructions with a command here to submission. If you are gripped by all of this, then you are freed and enabled, compelled and equipped to deny yourself, to give up your pride, to shrug off your self-focused life, and to pursue a life in which you Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Right, that's what Paul is getting at in these final instructions to slaves in chapter 2 and then generally at the beginning of chapter 3. Right, if chapter 3 verses 3 through 7 are the culminating doctrinal passage that defines the two that have gone before it, then I think that we could say that these two sections of application are the culminating and definitive points of application that inform what has gone before them. But these aren't just another in a list. These are the climaxing points of application that conclude and really encapsulate everything that has gone before. The instructions in verses 1 and 2 at the beginning of chapter 3 they're not just a collection of random verses, which is how we might be tempted to read them at first blush. This isn't just a quick mopping up of, of things that Paul hasn't yet been able to fit neatly into his points of application. There's a unity here. And what unifies these things, 
would unify submission to rulers and authorities. And remember that the first context, these are wicked and pagan, and if not already, soon to be persecuting rulers, would unify submission to rulers and authorities and obedience and ready good works and a refusal to speak evil of, of anyone. What unifies that with with a refusal to quarrel and a, and a gentleness and a courtesy, what unifies it all is that radical gospel-driven humility of Ephesians 5.21. Right? What Paul states there in its most distilled, concentrated form, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, here he takes and he expands and he applies to these various situations of public and private life, of internal and external life. He gives it a universal application. This is all without qualification and nuance. Right? He says to us, in every situation, public, private, internal, external, we are to be ready for every good work. We are to speak evil of no one. We are to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Right? You see what he's doing? He's bringing all of his application to this climax by giving these points of wide-ranging and unqualified application, driving home to us the utter totality of the imperative to humble holiness that flows out of all that we have received in the gospel. That humility is to be fundamental to the people of God. It is to be our defining characteristic, knowing how much we have received in and through Christ, we then become servants of all. Right? And that is why Paul ends his more situational applications in chapter 2 by applying all of this to slaves. Now, I think in our current geopolitical historical setting, Whenever we get to the sections which address slaves in Paul's letters, we get a little uncomfortable, right? And, and we probably should. We cannot but help immediately in our minds making the connection with North American slavery. And everything about that system should make us uncomfortable. It was horrifically sinful, and it has caused tremendous and long-lasting pain. And so, when we read this, we recoil and we sympathize with the Bible translators who want to, to take the edge off by translating it bond servants. Or the danger is that we maybe swing to the other extreme and we dig into our history books and we, we write off Roman slavery as well, nothing too terrible. Right? In comparison to the horrors of North American slavery, Roman slaves were educated and they had a great deal of freedom of movement. They were teachers and lawyers and soldiers and managers. And it's easy to look at that and think, well, that's not that bad. In fact, we might be tempted to think it doesn't sound all that different from my life. But we have to understand it's, it's still bad. Right, what Paul addresses here is it's not North American chattel slavery. It's not institutionalized man-stealing. But it's still bad. Right? It's still a situation in which one human being belonged to another, in which one human being is captive to the will of another human being. And for all of the advantages that Roman slaves, at least some Roman slaves had, 
legally, they had little right of recourse, and there were many times when their owners were abusive and tyrannical towards them. Right, think about it even from Scripture. Why would Paul have to command Christian slave owners to treat their slaves with respect? Because the overwhelming temptation is not to. Why would he have to teach the Christian slave owners to treat their slaves with justice and fairness? Because it was fundamental to the system to not treat your slave with, fun, with justice and fairness. Why would he have to tell them in Ephesians 6 to stop your threatening? Because it is natural for a slave owner to threaten his slaves. So, when Paul addresses slaves here, we have to understand that he is addressing men and women who are in a dire situation. They're in a horrible situation. And even to them, Paul gives this command to pursue a way of life that is humble and self-effacing, even seeking to, good, to do good to those who are keeping them in slavery. Now, why does Paul end his points of relational application with, with that? Why does he end it with slaves? Because he's setting up an argument from the greater to the lesser. Right, if this is the standard that is held up for those who find themselves in the most difficult and dire circumstances of life, then how much more are the free men and women, the free young men and women, the free older men and women bound by this same principle? Right, it is the climactic point of application that says that even in the most extreme situation in life, this same ethic applies. And if it applies there, then it must apply everywhere else. It applies everywhere because the gospel of our magnificent redemption from the quagmire of our sin and our new position in Christ, our debt to the monergistic work of God to bring us up out of our sin and to unite us to Himself compels us in all circumstances, to put away all pride and self-focus, and in all circumstances to pursue a way of life in which we only seek to give glory to God and do good to our neighbor. It compels us to forget ourselves. It compels us to fix our energy and our attention on the enhancement of another. Right, well, Paul wants the church in Crete to get what is so vital that we get is that the gospel by which we have been saved is so amazing, so total, so overwhelming, that when we grasp it, we must necessarily and without qualification be reshaped by it. And specifically, we must be compelled to live a life that forgets self, that gives up the I want, and is focused on simply obeying God and serving others. That's what unifies all of this. It's what unifies all of these interpersonal instructions that Paul has given. It's what underlies his instruction to the elders. It's what underlies his instruction to the older men and the older women. It's what underlies his instructions to the younger men and the younger women. Climactically, 
It's what underlies his instruction to the slaves. The picture that Paul is painting of what a Christian life looks like is one that gives up the self and that is driven by all that we have received. And so, we freely and joyfully give. He is saying that out of our reverence for Christ, we must submit to one another. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray for Your blessing upon us as we seek to heed Your Word and apply this to our lives. This is a simple instruction that You have given to us, one that can be distilled down just into a few words. But Lord, it is a hard instruction because our wanter is strong. Some of the first words that we learned to say were, I want. And it is hard for us to give that up. But we pray for the grace of Your Holy Spirit that He would continually fill us up with the knowledge of the gospel, that we would understand all that we have received from Your hands, and that daily we would take up those nails and that hammer and that we would crucify the flesh with its desires. That he would, we would put it to death, that we might live as you would have us live. Father, help us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.